2: Welcome to Containers, an eight-part radio documentary presented by Flexport. This podcast is all about how global trade has transformed the economy and ourselves. I'm Alexis Madrigal, and I'm going to lead you through the world of ships and sailors, tugboats and warehouses, cranes, and containers. Containers are those big boxes you see on cargo ships and on the backs of semi-trucks. Almost every consumer item you buy once traveled in one of them. They're the embodiment, basically, of global capitalism. So my proposition is that if you want to understand how the world of commerce works, there's no better microcosm than the system that moves containers around the globe. So how did this version of global trade get started? To understand that, we've got to head back 40 years to two places separated by the Pacific, Vietnam and California.
1: Even though I've heard it over and over again my whole life, I may get it wrong, so apologies in advance, especially to my mom, who I'm sure will find some cracks in the story. But
2: This is Gabby Miller, an artist here in Oakland. She wears her hair short, usually under a hat. And I don't know that I've ever seen her wear any pants other than her carpenter jeans. It's
1: 1973, and my father has been in Vietnam For about six years, when he was 30 years old, he started reading these stories, particularly by um, Martha Gellhorn, about the civilian casualties or people being killed in Vietnam.
2: Gellhorn was one of the 20th century's toughest, best war correspondents.
1: So he quit his job as a lawyer in New York City and moved over to Vietnam to try and start a hospital for children. He ended up getting funds from the U.S. government to run this project, to bring in kids who are hurt and um, give them plastic surgery and help them basically live. And my mom is 26 years old. She was born in Vietnam but raised uh, in Europe and New York City. And she's just finished getting a master's in anthropology at UC Berkeley. Then she went on
2: Jeopardy, like the game show Jeopardy, And she won a bunch of money. But instead of buying a home or a car, she decided to go to Vietnam at the height of the war to do humanitarian aid. And that's where she met Gabby's father, and they just hit it off. Her parents immediately began working to expose corruption, and it bonded them quickly and deeply.
1: It founded their relationship that they were in opposition to this Um, to U.S. imperialism, and they were very much in Vietnam to do humanitarian aid and falling wildly in love. Within two or three weeks of meeting each other, they decide to get married. It's been 40 years now.
2: They even had an article about them in the New York Times in which they had the most intense, candid conversation about each other.
1: I mean, it did bring tears to my eyes. Even though I've heard this story a million times, there's this one part where my mom is describing being in the audience while my dad is receiving this uh, award for doing his humanitarian aid in vietnam and uh read from it
2: yeah read read from it
1: so this is my mom knew saying when tom was awarded a prize from the american jc's for being a humanitarian in vietnam i sat in the audience sobbing The U.S. was trying to destroy my country, and the J.C.'s were recognizing Tom for trying to save lives. So absurd. This was also what made loving Tom acutely painful. He embodied everything that was kind and decent in America, which was sowing death and destruction. Those of us who came of age in the 1960s are sharply aware of this terrible dichotomy. This is what, you know, 40 years down the line I'm been spending my whole life trying to make sense of. <laughs> it's a beautiful and painful thing to try and make sense of. I just, at a certain point I realized I don't really have a choice but to try and understand our family emerging out of such a brutal brutal thing as the Vietnam War. I mean, it's a story that all of us are embedded in, but it's a hard one to ignore for me. <laughs> we
2: said,
3: Oakland is a
2: And one day, November 2nd, 2011 to be exact, she walked onto the Port of Oakland with 40,000 other Occupy Oakland protesters, though she didn't know it yet, she'd found a key location in the story of the Vietnam War.
1: That was the first time that I had been in the port. And that uh, materialized in a really beautiful way you know as sun was setting in the port and like Angela Davis is like flocking to my left and every single person that I went to elementary school is like somewhere in the crowd of this giant dream scene but it was real and human beings were stopping these giant machines
3: What's going on? <laughs>
2: Gabby picked up a book called The Box and soon discovered that the place she was raised, the San Francisco Bay, wasn't just one of the major sites of protest against the war. She knew that activist history of Berkeley students and the Black Panthers from her parents. The surprising thing is that Oakland enabled the military to send more troops to Vietnam. The port became the departure point for a new kind of transport that changed military logistics, the container ship. In fact, we can pinpoint the exact spot where Oakland helped the Vietnam War build up. Next time you're at the foot of the Bay Bridge, look south, and you'll see three cranes that look different from the rest. They're small, gray, and look like railroad bridges turned into vertical machines. That's where it all began. Mark Levinson is probably the world's expert on the development of container shipping. He wrote the book on it, The Box. And he notes that in 1965, President Lyndon Johnson had promised to expand the war in Vietnam, but had proven unable to do so.
0: Military buildup in Vietnam became a a scandal uh, just because of the, the poor logistics.
2: There was no domestic or international shipping or distribution infrastructure in Vietnam at the time.
0: There were a few docks along the Saigon River, and that was pretty much it. And so this raised the question of how do you feed and equip an army in a place that has no facilities to transport cargo or to import cargo? Uh, Vessels from the United States would show up pretty much unscheduled in Saigon. Uh, They would offload their cargo onto the docks in Saigon, and it would sit there. So cargo was being shipped all the way around the world, and the military units in the
2: field didn't even know that their supplies were in the country. Stuff was piling up
0: on the piers, and Congress was getting fed up. And so the Defense Department started asking people in the shipping industry, how do we deal with this? What do we, what do, we do?
2: And Malcolm McLean, the founder of Sealand, the first container shipping line, said, I can fix your problem. So the government gave him a contract. But there was no container business across the Pacific, so McLean
0: had to set up the whole system. And he had to set up ports on the U.S. Pacific coast, mainly Oakland, to send this cargo out. And this really contributed to Oakland's growth as a port. Oakland really became the major depot for outbound shipments of cargo during the Vietnam War. He actually had to build a port in Vietnam, Cam Ranh Bay, to handle this cargo.
3: Some of the more notable innovations in solving the logistical problems in Vietnam have been in the field of containerization. Here we see a Sealand ship...
0: Which By the, the peak of Sealand's business in design, Vietnam, which was roughly 1970, 71, uh, the Vietnam War probably accounted for close to half of Sea Land's business.
3: It takes only
0: and what's really wild is that the Oakland side of the
2: operation is still standing, if not still working. The cranes that loaded the cargo being sent to Cameron Bay are right there in the Outer Harbor, which is the part of the port that's closest to the Bay Bridge. I wanted to see them, to stand under them. So Kyle Brunel, who manages cranes for the port, drove me out. Looking up at one of these giants, even these, which are smaller than their descendants, is sublime both in the current sense of awe-inspiring, but also in the old sense of a kind of nobility-inducing terror.
0: But what I find interesting is that these that were developed in the, in the 60s, essentially they're the same today, just larger and, and more advanced. So you've got...
2: The key structures are in place. There's the boom. If they were dinosaurs, that'd be the neck part. They're long, so they can extend the width of the big ships. If they're working, they sit flat. At rest, they put them up at that 45-degree angle. The legs, which sit on rails, are 50 feet apart, so the trucks can drive underneath them. A rectangular mechanism dangles from the crane, orange in this case. That's the spreader, which locks onto the corners of the boxes to hoist them skyward.
3: And
0: that's this, you can see that white structure hanging below the, yeah. the crane. That's the operator's cab. The operator sits in there, and when the boom's down, he'll travel out over the ship. And using the, uh, the spreader, he'll uh, you know, offload the ship.
2: The operator literally looks through his or her legs and down through a glass floor to the containers below. And from the late 1960s until today, this has been how the system worked. Each piece of this system had to be refined and had to be standardized. The box, the crane, the ship, the operations of the yard, the locking mechanisms that allow the boxes to be moved from ship to truck chassis to rail car. And each component has to work with all the others all over the world. This whole system is what people mean when they say containerization. And what containerization allowed was trade at a ridiculous, preposterous global economy reshaping scale. About 500 million tons of stuff moved around the ocean in 1950, That was up to 4 billion tons in the early 1990s, and now the number is almost 10 billion tons. That's 10 billion times 2,000 pounds worth of stuff. I don't think anyone would say that containerization wouldn't have happened without the Vietnam War. But it sure did speed things along, especially across the Pacific, which became the route that created vast new economic possibilities for Asian manufacturers and American importers and retailers. The Sealand ships soon started stopping by Japanese ports on their way back home from Vietnam to pick up electronics for American markets. Soon Japanese officials were visiting Oakland. Then they were building their own container ports in Japan with sister facilities in Oakland. Then came the Korean and Taiwanese and Chinese companies. The Pacific was wide open for business. (laughs) The revolution at the port transformed the city and the day-to-day lives of many people in Oakland. I wanted to get a feel for how people were thinking and talking about the changes in those days. And looking through newspaper clippings, you can practically smell the excitement wafting up from the local archives. I'm looking at four manila folders worth of stuff all labeled Oakland, Port of Oakland. So here, this is interesting. This is early, early stuff here. This is from the Oakland Tribune, January 5th, 1956. Port of Oakland shows definite strides in 55. You know, they're talking about a motel, the first and last chance saloon in Jack London, that there'd be a cotton warehouse. This is before containerization. There's no mention, really, of the port being a significant player in the world. Read all about it. Paper. January twenty third, 1966, in the yeah. Oakland Tribune. Oakland hub for transport. Cities have traditionally grown where means of transportation meet. For this reason, there was never a better place for a city than Oakland, at the hub of the East Bay and, indeed, the Bay Area.
3: Oakland had the courage to dream and to plan.
2: So there is a guy they talk to here, Harry Gilbertson, manager of Pacific Operations for Sealand Service, had this to say. In the next 20 years, all significant trade routes will either containerize or be killed, Gilbertson predicts. What that means to the East Bay is that Oakland will dominate Bay Area shipping. San Francisco docks are so congested, so clobbered up, that no containerized operation with half a mind would go near it. They'll come to Oakland.
3: Out comes the line of the pipe. Here's the whole headline. March 20th,
2: 1969. Oh, here you go. This is where you get some good chest beating from the Tribune. Oakland now ranks second among container ports in the world in terms of tonnage of cargo moved and facilities available. Mortensen, who recently returned from an international conference of harbor operators in Melbourne, Australia, said there was amazement at Oakland's emergence as a top port. The port president said, many of them asked, where's Oakland and what do you have there? He added, they know now.
3: And here it is again in the papers.
2: Old white man with skinny ties, standing in front of planning documents. Farsighted planning made Oakland a major seaport, serving over 50 steamship lines. Paper from 1970. This is the Sunday Tribune. Big headline. Profit comes in containers. Success greater in, quote unquote, going global. Here's how this one starts off. Today's prosperity on the Oakland waterfront is based on a box. And they kind of give you a nice little uh, nut graph here. Thanks for being. Until the early 1950s, ships carried freight within the hull of the ship in cavernous holds. Bulk materials such as rice and scrap metals or cartons of manufactured goods could be shoveled, poured, or carried into place. Bulky materials could be carried on deck. The ship was, in effect, the container, and it had to be laboriously loaded piece by piece at dock. Since port activities, taxes, and real estate are estimated to have generated a total economic impact on the metropolitan Oakland area of $100 million during the year, the box is a pretty valuable idea. Containerization is one of the most significant economic forces of the last hundred years. Suddenly... It made corporate sense to make things where the labor was cheap and simply ship them to the rich places. Suddenly all the things were being made in different, usually Asian, countries. Containerization was a necessary component of the globalization we know now. Mark Levinson would say that it changed the economic geography of the world. But then there are guys like Herb Mills, a longshoreman as well as a political scientist, a kind of worker philosopher. As you might imagine, he has a less positive view of containerization. Mills thinks containers destroyed manufacturing in this country by making it too easy to import goods from other places. For example, just look at the auto industry, which used to make components like brakes and transmissions here in the
0: United States. Because you can bet your sweet ass... If all them transmissions was being hand-handled out of the hold of a ship
3: and put on a pallet board and sent ashore, rather than
0: 20 tons of transmissions being in a goddamn container box, transmissions still be built in Detroit. Though the container has been the physical means of exploiting cheap labor throughout the world.
2: Mills had seen the change up close, He was an old-school San Francisco dock worker, deeply involved in the powerful and influential International Longshore and Warehouse Union. They're the people who load and unload cargo from ships, and almost no one was hit harder by containerization than the longshoremen. Here's how it felt to witness that. This is an archival recording of a longtime longshoreman, Eric Nelson, as recorded in the late 1970s by Brian Nelson, his nephew, and also a longshoreman.
3: In the old days, there would be great numbers of men. Now it's, it's a, like a tomb here, there's nobody around, just one or two stray people. But if you could think back, you ever knew back, when you saw hundreds of cars, people, looking for a place to park along here or else? Take a given dock, pier, f- pier 15, you walk into Pier 15, There would be gangs working and hundreds of trucks and hundreds of people, in and out, paint gangs, uh, repair people, uh, laundry being brought back. Uh, There was just a hustle and bustle. There would be cargoes all around the world exposed to your view, sacks with pepper with spices and flour, grain. That was not mechanized. That was strictly manhandled. That was uh, rope slings were used to sling the cargo the coffee, set it on a four-wheeled flat truck, and you used a T-handle to pull.
2: And it wasn't just the longshoremen who were affected. Large chunks of the world's biggest and most important places got hollowed out.
0: Uh, Containerization contributed to the decline of a lot of port cities around the world.
2: This is Mark Levinson again.
0: It's hard to remember now, but the port cities by and large were manufacturing centers. So typically, in a major port, you had a row of piers along the waterfront, and behind them, you had warehouses and factories. Uh, and you had lots and lots of workers whose jobs were tied to the port, either because they worked on the docks and in the warehouses or because they worked in the factories that were very close to the port. Containerization changed this, uh, really transformed the ports within the span of about 15 years, probably. Uh, First of all, uh, containerization itself didn't make sense in a port city. Uh, The container needed space. A container port needed Uh, a patio to store containers, and you didn't have that in the middle of a a big port city. It needed good access in and out by land, uh, via truck or, or rail, and the port cities were not very good for that. And so, typically, the container ports were built on the edge of town. So,
2: that'd be Newark, not Manhattan or Brooklyn. That'd be Newport News down in Virginia, and that'd be Oakland not San Francisco.
0: But that was okay for the industry because the container changed the economics of shipping such that factories didn't need to be by the port anymore. Industry was able to decentralize. You didn't need all these factories to be right at the port. So
2: they set up shop in the cheaper suburbs and exurbs, taking those jobs with them outside the cities. Meanwhile, containerized cargo required way fewer hours of human labor than what was called break-bolt cargo. So, The longshoremen's jobs disappeared, too.
0: Somewhere close to 90 percent of the dock workers in New York City lost their jobs within the span of about 15 years after the container came into being. And you saw much the same thing in San Francisco, saw much the same thing in London. The dock workers in most cities lived not far from the docks. And so these neighborhoods really suffered. Their main income source from the the dock labor was gone. The factories that provided jobs to a lot of people who lived near the waterfront were gone.
2: Keep in mind, these were neighborhoods in Manhattan, in Brooklyn, in San Francisco, in London. We're not talking about the Rust Belt. The Trump administration has been promising to bring manufacturing jobs back, And maybe strong-arming a factory here or there might work, but the port cities are never going to be what they once were. Cargo will never be handled by hand again. And most of the jobs that people think have gone to Mexico or Asia or elsewhere have actually just been made obsolete by automation. There's one lesson from all this history, is that when something as big as containerization happens, everything in the economy changes and no executive order or tariff can turn the clock back and recreate the old economic systems. Which is why there should probably be a plaque or even a museum out there by those three old cranes. One could make a pretty good argument that no single location was as important in jump-starting, containerization, and the economic model that trailed right behind it than that spot. It could be that there was simply too much going on during that era in the Bay Area. It's almost unbelievable how many of the foundational innovations of our time had their roots in this five or so years in the Bay Area. Intel was founded in Mountain View by Bob Noyce, a co-creator of the microchip in 1968, and the ARPANET, the precursor to the modern Internet, was switched on in 1969, with the Stanford Research Institute as one of its first four nodes. A couple years later, biologists at Stanford and the University of California managed the first successful genetic engineering. Pick a realm of science or technology, and you find people in the Bay creating fundamentally new things. And none of this is to mention the cultural ferment that created the modern hippies, Sly and the Family Stone, the Hells Angels, and the Black Panthers. Seriously, what was in the water back then? Actually, probably acid. It, It was acid. That's what it was. It was after. Containerization gave an incredible boost to the global economy, reducing prices for people in rich countries and creating opportunities for literally hundreds of millions of people in Asia to work their way out of poverty. In this country, trade drives the consumer economy that literally everyone in America enjoys, no matter how much we might theoretically take issue with the specifics of how it works. Nikes, iPhones, apples in winter, cheap pants, Ikea furniture, shipping is everything. And also, local communities and industries were wiped out. And also, tens of millions of Chinese people have jobs linked to U.S. imports. And also, the labor of logistics is far less dangerous and dirty than it used to be. And also, the work is more routine and boring. And also, the huge ports inflict major environmental damage on the areas that surround them. And also, American cities are cleaner because the factories are polluting Beijing. And also, the ships burn vast amounts of dirty bunker fuel, generating between 2 and 3% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions. And also, the stuff arrives on our shores with half the ton-mile greenhouse gas emissions of trucks or planes. With containerization, these local global tensions are everywhere you look. Some people, some place, bears the load of the whole system. You remember Gabby Miller, the artist we talked with at the beginning. These are the logistical paradoxes that fascinate her. After her trip to the port during Occupy, she kept digging deeper and deeper into the power of logistics. In her work, she explores the human and environmental impacts of trade more than the economic transformations.
1: The phone or the camera, um, the backpack, whatever. All these objects, if you trace it, have this violent history that not just that it emerges out of this moment of war, um, like this way of doing trade, but also this really degradation of the environment and of using like the lowest common denominator in terms of labor quality to make goods so that we can have them cheap over here. And I basically wanted to in body to follow the the route of goods that first crossed the Pacific to uh, like from Oakland to Vietnam to supply the Vietnam War I thought that this was this unknown moment in history that had huge repercussions So I wanted to study it. I wanted to follow it. And also this idea of crossing the ocean. My mom's from Vietnam. My dad's white, American. Like You're always far away from home. So
2: she booked a passage aboard a container ship headed for Asia to see how the goods actually move now, not just historically, across the ocean that connects Oakland to Asia. Like, what does it really take? What are the costs you don't see from inside a Target or when a package arrives at your door? And how did you how did you actually get on the boat? I think people dream about getting on these yeah. boats.
1: But. Well, it's actually way more simple than I imagined. I just googled uh, I googled how to cross or how to be a passenger on a container ship and there's basically one travel agency called Cruise People in London and you write to this AOL address which is like you're like is this real? Like Cruise People at AOL. Com. And, and they're like, you,
2: sure, yeah, just wire your money yeah, to just, Lagos. Just, and...
1: Yeah, and they did. Like, I had to do this really, like, old, an old school way of wiring money that felt it was like a very antiquated early internet process.
2: And, like, are they used to having passengers now? Or are you just kind of like a freak when you're on board?
1: I was, I mean, there was some. It's, it's not that normal. So when. Um, they, they were telling me like when I, when they got my papers, they were like, "What? A thirty year old woman is coming on the sh-? They were super excited. They're like, "I can't believe this!" And then I like walked up the gangway, and I looked pretty masculine, short hair, and they were like, <laughs> they were "Like, damn, <laughs> yeah." They were, it was you know. And after a while, one of them was like, "You know, I've I've seen the L word. Like, I know what's up."
2: Gabby hopped on the ship not knowing what art she'd make. She knew she wanted it to deal with the impacts of these huge ships, but for a while she just stared at the horizon, making notes in a journal and painting seascapes.
1: About two weeks into the trip, we we stopped in Nakotka, which is a sister city of Oakland, um, to bunker for oil. And the bunkering process takes about 24 hours. There's a little bunker ship that comes to the side of our ship, and a huge, a huge uh, hose gets pulled up the side of our ship and attached I don't know how many tons of oil it is but it's like three to five million dollars worth of oil gets suctioned inside of the ship and there has to be uh crew members that stand guard the whole time just make sure nothing happens and I was super fascinated with the process watching all this uh oil come inside of the boat as I was watching the oil come in and seeing this like deep, rich color of like drips of oil come out of the the hose, I thought maybe you could paint with that.
2: The next thing she knew, she and some of the younger crew members were painting landscapes and funny portraits of each other. She wanted a jar to collect more bunker fuel. So she went to the head cook and told him what she was up to.
1: He realized for the first time that I was an artist. He was like, that's what you're doing on this ship. Like you, I had no idea what you're doing here. You're an artist, like you're here to make work. Will you paint? Uh, we paint this picture of my wife and me. He took the picture off the wall and uh, gave it to me, and I immediately, you know, made the image. And I, would, within you know, five minutes of starting, um, the captain of the ship came by and asked me, "Well, can you paint my? Can you paint my kids?" And it, was, it totally uh, snowballed from there. Very quickly, I had pictures, images of every single member of the ship, like 28 crew members requesting um, that I paint their loved ones. So the captain was you know, really supportive, super sweet. And so he let me uh, move into the swimming pool room. There's a small swimming pool on deck. And it wasn't really in use. They usually use it when it's in, when they're in warmer waters, like in the Indian Ocean. it will suck up ocean water and swim around. Um, so I moved into the swimming pool room, and I would paint these portraits all day. The crew members, after they got off their shift, would come and hang out with me. They would paint. We'd all paint together. And then we put on a little art show before I disembarked, where everybody, all 28 crew members, came in, and they saw each other's families for the first time. That was the work that I started with on a ship. And I ended up, I gave them all the portraits and then later repainted them and have been using a supply of heavy crude oil to make work since then.
2: Where do you get heavy crude oil?
1: With my waist. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> Being at this, on the sea for so long, I had never quite felt... Um, so much on earth even though I was in this it was this very strange and disconcerting feeling of being in this beast this oil sucking em- like emission making garbage carrying beast um, and then being in this like beautiful beautiful earth
2: Like Gabby, I'd gone deep enough into the history of trade that I needed to see how it worked in the present day. Oakland is one of the largest ports in the United States, doing almost 2 million tons of importing and exporting cargo. And I thought the best place to grasp the whole of it would be from the platform on the top of one of those huge cranes that you see at ports. It's a very long elevator ride up to the midsection of the crane. We're in the old Ports America terminal, which closed down during 2016. The crane that we're in will be taken over by a company called Treypack soon. But in the meantime, you know, here we are with the run of the place. Now... It's time to go up to the apex, where we'll be able to look out at the whole of the port and the bay.
3: Walk out on the uh, train. Yeah, a little better view.
2: We clang along walkways, tromp upstairs, shimmy up a metal ladder. Finally, we climb one last flight of stairs to the apex. We're two hundred and fifty feet up and we're surrounded by nothing but an American flag and Oakland air. The Bay Bridge is to our back. We're looking southeast at the port and the city. So the first thing to note is obvious. The port is huge, hundreds of acres. The second thing to know is that the Port of Oakland itself, the quasi-governmental entity ultimately controlled by the city, does not run any cargo. They're what's called a landlord port. They lease chunks of land and equipment to terminal operators, which do the actual loading and unloading. Those can be specialized port companies, known as stevedores, or shipping lines themselves. The place where these differences are most obvious is out on 7th Street, or the Benny Nutter Terminal, which is run by Evergreen, a Taiwanese shipping line. The reason it's obvious is that everything is frigging green, because that's the company's color. That terminal geometrically juts out into the bay. It was created in the late 1960s to spur investment in container shipping, They just built an 8,630-foot wall out into the middle of the bay and then filled in that basin with 13.5 billion pounds of dirt and rock, which had been bored out of the Berkeley Hills by the BART train system. Directly to the left, there's the Treypack area, which is a major stevedoring company on the West Coast. They've just built a fully automated terminal down in Long Beach, which makes everyone up here a little bit nervous. But, but... They're investing in Oakland, leasing more space, and that scene is a good sign by everyone. Then there's two small parks, Port View and Middle Harbor Shoreline. They were created as part of the deal that the port cut with environmental activists to dredge the shipping channel down to 50 feet, which allows the current largest class of vessel, which are like 1,300 feet long, 180 feet wide, and 20 stories tall, to actually cozy up to the dock. Behind the parks, there's a loop of the different rail lines that service the port, you know, all these tracks in a row. Despite all of that, the rail links down in Los Angeles and Long Beach are better. That means that the vast majority of national import cargo now flows through southern California to points east. We just get the boxes up here that carry products for northern California consumption. And then stretching to the horizon is the Middle Harbor, which is directly across from the island of Alameda. If you've ever ridden the ferry from Oakland to San Francisco, this is the part of the port that you passed. Nowadays, this is where most of the action is for the port. The Oakland International Container Terminal, as it's known, handles something like 70% of the boxes that flow through the city, and it's run by a different stevedoring company called SSA. Continuing the sweep left, there's my fair city's dwarf downtown, looking even shrimpier from this high up. The city's relationship with the port is cordial. The mayor appoints a board of commissioners who then run the show. Under port director Chris Lytle, who came up from Long Beach a couple years ago, the port's been doing well. Lytle is smart, respected, respectable, and he's avoided the scandals of previous administrations, like the time in 2012 that a previous director expensed a trip to the champagne room at a strip club in Houston, like he kept the receipts, and then he tried to get money back. Further to the left, there's a tangle of freeways leading in all directions, and then beyond that, there's West Oakland which has been the center of black life in Oakland since long before the Great Migration made Oakland into one of the nation's most important hubs of black culture and community. And it is West Oakland, which has absorbed just about all of the environmental repercussions of the port's success. With community prodding, the port has made huge strides in reducing diesel emissions from trucks and ships. But in 2012, the life expectancy of black people in the flatlands along the water was about 72 years. For black people in the cleaner, wealthier hills... was 81 years and finally just to my left in the foreground there are those three gray cranes we stood under earlier which began the transformation of a lot more than just this place that's the show jonathan hirsch saved my bacon by producing and editing from los angeles fusion media group's executive director of audio is mandana mofidi Thanks also to Brian Nelson and Chris Carlson for the use of their recordings. Fana Zhao for the dynamite art in the containers logo. I am in romantic love with this art. Oakland's Jamal Jellyfish for composing some of the music for the show. Mike Zampa and Kyle Brunel from the port for taking so much time teaching me about the place where they work. And a very special thanks to Gabby Miller who helped inspire this whole documentary series. Tune in next time when we meet two Filipino sailors and explore a target like the big box store. Oh, yeah, and subscribe. Subscribe and rate the podcast. It helps it a lot. It's just possibly a niche topic you may have noticed. <laughs> we can use all the help we can get. Thanks.
1: Every time I take the BART, I, like, grow silent when we pass west. Go, oh, there it is. It's so beautiful. I mean, it's really awe-inspiring to drive through it. You know, you can drive through most of the port, um, and you just feel you're like, you feel so so minuscule. So you're like, this is another world, you know? Either, you know, the, the cranes themselves look like those weird dinosaur things, so you have this prehistoric vibe going on, but you're just dwarfed by the immensity of the place,